Hey everyone, it's Dave. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to let everybody know that not only do I give my books away for free, but I pay for shipping. I'll sign it, send it to you. Just go to shipmeyourbook.com. Shipmeyourbook.com. Enjoy my book. Thanks so much. On this episode of The Playbook, I have Jay Billis, college basketball analyst for ESPN. We're not only going to talk about how our parents pressured us to go to law school and how we're happy they did, but more importantly, the lessons Jay has learned from the fabulous Coach K. Join me for all this and more on The Playbook. This is Entrepreneurs The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. Now I have Jay Billis, college basketball analyst for ESPN, but I'm going to ask him to start off because Jay, welcome to the playbook. I got to say this. I'm going to ask you about your most memorable interview, but I'm going to preempt that with the fact that this may be my most memorable interview. Although I've had uh, billionaires, millionaires, athletes, hall of famers. The reason why is not only is it Christmas Eve, but it's your birthday. And after doing some due diligence, you and I have, besides your basketball talent, so much in common. It's extraordinary. So I'm so excited to delve into your journey, your playbook of success. And most importantly, Jay, happy birthday. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be with you. And uh, I appreciate you having me on. I wore my special ugly Christmas sweater for you, too, with my TV show on it. So we're going all out for your birthday. Anyway, so let's start with You know, you've done a lot of interviews, you've been on TV, a lot of games, a lot of celebrities, athletes, entertainers yourself. What's your most memorable interview? Boy, that's interesting. I don't I don't know that I've thought about it quite that way. I think most of the the most memorable things have come uh, from the most difficult situations. So if you've got a a halftime interview with a coach that's losing badly or something that that uh, tends to give you some uh, some interesting moments. And then some of the sit-down interviews that I've done uh, with coaches, I used to go out on the road uh, before the season and put together a bunch of features for ESPN uh, that were called All Access. So we'd put a microphone on the coach during, uh, during practice and then sit down and, and interview the coach about you know, their, their coaching philosophy, things like that, and how they run things. Uh, so those were always great. And I, I, I had some iconic coaches on there. So it was a lot of fun for me, and I learned a lot. Well, speaking of iconic coaches, you played for one of the most iconic coaches, a guy who I've sat down with. And you know, I could sit all days, I'm sure you know, with Coach K, uh, playing at Duke, playing for Coach K four years, winning a national championship, I believe, what, 1986? Uh, my, my senior year in high school. Um, what was the, what, uh, you can't say the, so what were some of the greatest lessons uh, that you learned from Coach K? Because it must be extraordinary to have that education of just playing for him. Yeah. I mean, the education's gone on for close to 40 years for me now. Uh, I met Coach K when I was 17 and uh, and started playing for him when I was 18. So I was really, I have been extraordinarily lucky to not only have a mentor and a coach uh, like like Coach K, but to have him uh, in my life for that amount of time where he's, he's still working and I'm still learning things from him all the time. Um, I mean, the, the lessons are, are, uh, are numerous, I would say. I mean, there's probably outside of my, my family, 
Um, Coach K has been the most meaningful relationship I've had in my life, and my decision to play for him, uh, I think, is the most meaningful decision I've ever made outside of my my uh, you know family decisions. Um, his, you know, he was great on preparation. So the things he taught there and then great in, uh, sort of how you take your preparation onto the floor without fear. You know, the, he had a thing that he always used to say, he'd just say next play, you know, next play, you got to move on. So whatever happens, we'll, we'll, we'll analyze it later, but right now you got to move on positive or negative and, and stay, you know, people call it and stay in the moment, which just means on concentrate on what you're doing. Uh, if you throw yourself completely into what you're doing right now, uh, most everything else will take care of itself. And and he was a first things first guy. I think it still is. Um, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get better by uh, thinking about some grand plan that you have. You got to get better today. And, uh, and, you know, sort of the, the next step you take, uh, it's, I guess if you wanted to call it like the journey of a thousand uh, journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, his thing is concentrate on the step we're on and we'll, we'll reach the destination eventually, as long as we concentrate on today. And one of the similarities that you and I have, you know, we both come from families. Uh, I think that subscribe to, you know, doctor, lawyer, failure type of mentality that the fetus isn't fully developed till after graduate school. There's a enormous amount of pressure for education. And obviously that must have been part of your decision to go to Duke, because especially in the eighties, you know, coach K was known for graduating players for taking intelligent followers and turning them into leaders. Um, that education, you did go to law school you, and you pursued your education, even though, you know, it seemed as if you may not ever practice law, something that I've done as well. Um, why did you want to go to law school and how have you used your legal degree in your career so far? Well, I don't know that I did want to go. Uh, my parents wanted me to go. And, <laughs> Join the uh, club. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, they were right. I mean, I think and my dad sold it to me that way, essentially. Uh, by saying that that the law degree, he felt like a law degree was the most versatile to have. Uh, it would serve me well, whether I practice law or not. And and he, his thing was, you don't have to be a lawyer. You get a law degree, you don't have to be a lawyer. But he thought it would teach me a different way of thinking. And it would also, if things are, if I went in another direction uh, and things ever got tough for me, I could hang out a shingle and make a, make a living, make a good living. And that gave me a tremendous amount of confidence, you know, having that uh, after I passed the bar exam, I could go out and practice. You know, I'm still I'm still licensed to practice, although, you know, I don't practice much anymore. Um, it, it is nice to have in your back pocket that that if, you know, if ESPN ever kicks me out, uh, which is, a, am sure, a, more than a possibility, I can I can go back into uh, to practicing law and, and do pretty well for myself. So it, it's a nice Nice thing to have. And, uh, and I think my dad saw that. Uh, maybe he just had a, a really healthy fear of my failure. So wanted to wanted to provide me with whatever stop gaps he could. Yeah, I think my dad felt the same way, although he didn't tell me how much money I'd save uh, knowing how law lawyers charge. So one of the hidden secrets of going to law school is you don't get ripped off by the lawyers when you need them yourself. Uh, one of the areas that I thought was fun. Now, fairness is another issue. I know Coach K is known for your you know, someone who talks about fairness within the context of, you know, not only the NCAA, but uh, the treatment of the athletes themselves in the NCAA. What are some of the fair things that you've seen today as we evolved uh, with the new licensing rules, you know, as a lawyer, 
but where do you see fairness falling compared to, you know, the last 30 or 40 years? Well, I, I think things are slowly incrementally getting better, but it's too slow and too incremental. And I just don't think fairness is that difficult. I don't know why. Well, I know why it's money. Uh, the people who have the money want to keep it and they don't want to share it. And we've been doing it this way for a long time and they've been getting away with it and they want to keep getting away with it. That's all it is. Um, and it's, and I don't mean that to be some kind of sinister thing, you know, that, that, you know, all the folks at the NCAA are, are sitting there in a, in a big throne, stroking a hairless cat, trying to figure out how to take over the world. But, but it, it would be disingenuous to suggest that all these decisions aren't made based upon money first and foremost. And when I was in college, I was on a, an NCAA committee called the NCAA Long Range Planning Committee. I was one of two student uh, athlete representatives, uh, and I hate that term, but that's what it's called. Uh, so I learned about policy. Uh, I got involved in it, and I didn't like it. Uh, I didn't think it was fair. And, but at the time, I just voiced my concerns in committee meetings, and uh, I was a party line guy once we walked out of the committee. Um, and, but that's, I'm not on committees anymore. So I'm not a party line guy anymore. I get to say what I think. And I think it's horribly unfair that athletes are being sold for billions of dollars while at the same time told they can't accept anything more than their expenses. Um, when every other student is allowed a scholarship and a lot of non-athletes get scholarships and then they can earn or accept whatever they want in the marketplace. And it doesn't affect their status as students one bit. So um, there's no need for any of this. There's no need for all these ridiculous transfer rules we have. There's no need for athletes not to get due process in the NCAA enforcement system. And they don't have that. Um, they're, they're, they basically have no, no rights. And uh, Congress is catching up. Um, different state legislatures are catching up. And they're, they're way ahead of the NCAA on this. Uh, and that's too bad, but, but the train's rolling down the tracks. And ultimately, I mean, the NCAA is still fighting all these things in the Supreme Court. So while they say they want to do certain things for athletes, they really don't because they're still fighting it in the Supreme Court of the United States. And uh, that, that shows you what, what they really think. Like, like what they say is one thing, but what, they, what, they're really, what they're doing shows you what they really think. Right. And for years they've been doing it and they've taken advantage of what I call an adaptable class. Since everyone graduates in four or five or six years, no one has enough standing or enough pressure. They, you know, after they graduate, they kind of move on from the issues. So they never have a standing class to represent, you know, for these last 30 for 40 years. In fact, uh, I owned uh, Steve Clarkson Dream Makers with a quarterback guru, Steve Clarkson. He's kind of like the Whitfield, uh, the, the original Whitfield. And we had Liner. And we tried to, to show Liner because they said that, you know, his jersey sales had nothing to do with him. It didn't even have his name on his back. So he wanted to switch his number three days before the season started and watch Reebok and the NCAA, you know, spin and hurl on what they said that Matt has nothing to do with his jersey. It would have been an incredible message to be sent way back then. Um, even more in fairness now, there's another issue that you've, you know, talked about a lot. And, and I really appreciate your perspective on is just, the pandemic more than even the NBA college basketball has, you know, protective issues, uh, choice issues. There's so many different critical business issues and legal issues around playing basketball right now during the pandemic. I was hoping you could share some of those thoughts with us of what those issues are and, and where you fall within those. Well, I, I'm, nobody wants to play the games more than I do. 
Uh, I, I, it's my job too. And there are a lot of livelihoods at stake. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And that industry didn't just pop up overnight, you know, via the big bang or something. This was intentionally built over the course of, of years. And, and it was done very thoughtfully to build it into what it is now. So the decisions that are being made, I don't doubt that, that, the, the powers that be want everyone to be safe, but they're not saying, okay, well, we can put the paid employees at risk, but we're not going to put the unpaid uh, amateurs at risk. They're, they're not doing that. Uh, and they're not doing it with all respect to everyone. They're not doing it just so the players have the opportunity to play. That's not true. Um, it's a nice byproduct, but this is being done because there's a ton of money at stake. Um, you know, they're not putting on the school play so that the student thespians can have that experience. They're not doing all these other things. Um, they're doing this because it's big, big money. And that's OK. I mean, it, we just need to admit it. Uh, but I, I think with we're having a change in circumstances right now and it's changing for the worse every day. Our government is telling us not to travel unless it's essential and not to gather, not to do all these things. But yet. Uh, we, we seem to make exceptions for football and basketball when we're not making those exceptions in other sports and we're not doing the same things in other sports and other endeavors within the university community. Uh, the players now in football and basketball are, are living in bubbles. They're in isolation where they cannot see their families. They cannot get out of these isolation bubbles. Uh, and really the justification for it has been, uh, well, they want to play. The, the, the players want to play, therefore, therefore it's okay. And I don't think we've had a national dialogue about not can we play, but should we play through all this? And what, what are our metrics? Where will we say, okay, th this isn't feeling right anymore? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I, don't, I feel conflicted every time I go to a game. And the coaches are all telling me privately, what are we doing? All of them. And, and, but publicly, some of them are saying, well, the players want to play and they're saying that this is a new one. The players are safer playing than they would be if we let them go home. And I, while I, I think as a factual matter, that, that may be empirically true, that if you put someone in complete isolation, they're safer than if you let them out. I mean, that, that may be true, but we're also saying that, you know, the, the implication is we care more about these players. Therefore, we're doing this uh, with them. So the implication, I mean, the, the obvious extension of that is we don't care as much about the other sports, which we're not doing this for. And we are letting them go home and see their families and have their holiday at home. And we don't care as much about the regular students because we're letting all we're actually making all of them go home. And we're not going to bring them back until the middle of January, at the earliest. So uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of odd contradictions in this, uh, but as long as people are, are upfront about it and, and we admit that this is being done for money, uh, then I'm okay with it. Because at the beginning of this, we said, we, the NCAA said, uh, no students on campus, no college sports. And they, they didn't leave any, any wiggle room there. And also said, we will never play in a bubble. We're, we are not professionals. That's for the NBA. We will never play in a bubble. And look what we're doing. We, we got, we're, we're, that's all we have are bubbles. Right. Yeah. Uh, last issue, because preparation is such a big part. Consistent, persistent behavior is such a big part of who you are and what you've learned. And, you know, one of the things that I love most that you do is your uh, analysis of the NBA draft. And, you know, I've been around uh, running Lee Steinberg and, you know, drafts are kind of a thing that we deal with all the time. And I don't think people realize 
what consistent, persistent preparation is necessary in order to understand the quality of talent and what goes on in the draft. Um, for you, I'd love for you to kind of finish off. How do you prepare, you know, for that top hundred? How do you prepare, you know, for the draft? It's a, I've been doing the draft for ESPN since 2003. So before that, I used to go out on the road and, and just study uh, high school and co- high school players. And then, you know, young college players for their performance in college. I wasn't concentrating on, on, you know, where they were going to go in the draft or what they might do as, as professionals. But when we got, when ESPN got the NBA draft and got the NBA in 2003, uh, I was put on the main desk for the draft. And so I really, I really started, to scout for the future rather than just for, uh, you know, their college future. And, you know, I've learned as I've gone, uh, and, and hopefully I'm doing it better today than I did it then. I don't know that I am, honestly, uh, it seems like the more I learn, the less I feel like I know. (laughs) And, and that's, maybe that's a good thing, but you know, when you, I think for anybody in a, in a front office, that's making decisions on players or, you know, an agent, whatever, anybody, or even in my job, anybody who's making decisions or judgments on players, you gather as much information as you can. And then you watch as much tape as you can, and you try to make the best possible projection that you can, but it's humbling knowing that you're going to be wrong on a, on a number of players. Um, You're going to be wrong on the ones you think are going to make it big. And you're going to be wrong on the ones that you think are not. And, uh, uh, you know, you just try to keep those misses to a minimum because it's not an exact science. There's no way to determine, um, you know, who's going to make it and who's not, uh, you know, and how somebody's going to blow up. uh, And, and, you know, you have guys that you think, well, he's going to be pretty good. And he turns out to be great. Um, You know, I don't know who thought Draymond Green was going to be the player he's become when he was coming out of college, he was taken 35th overall in the draft. So you can make the argument that 34 teams, uh, you know, obviously there aren't 34 teams in the league, but at 34 slots, they didn't have that belief. Um, So, so, you know, how how do you process that? You just do the best you can. And and that's basically what I've done. I, I, I watch a lot of tape. I talk to people. I try not to go off of what other people, what other people say, even though I know it's of some influence, people I trust. Uh, but if somebody says something to me, then I go and I confirm it. Or I, I say, well, I don't agree with what was said based upon what I see. And, and you go from there. I just try to have every judgment be my own, even though I'm not naive. I know that, that when people I trust give me their judgment, uh, somehow that's going to be of some influence in mine. And another influence, you know, obviously people like you and I, since the time we go to law school, become more hyper analytical and utilizing that capability in different ways than other people. And you significantly have done that as well as a sports analyst and specifically in in college basketball. How much over the years have you learned uh, where your emotions have clouded that analytical skill set that you've built? And, you know, when you talked about not knowing what you don't know, I'm 52 years old, it's about five years younger than you today. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, how much have you learned? Because it's been a pursuit of mine of being aware of, you know what, this is really emotional. I just like this kid or somebody, you know, swayed me with with their uh, arguments or, or data. How much still today does emotion sway you in your analysis? I don't think emotion does. I think what what 
may sway me is something I see that I like or don't like. And it may be just a matter of taste. Um, you know, you, you, I, I used to, before the game changed, I used to, I used to gravitate more toward bigger guards. And now that the game is different, that's called differently and smaller guards, uh, generally have a much easier time of making it now than they did 10 years ago. Um, I've given up on that. Um, and, and I probably, I don't know whether that's emotion or just some sort of, of old school bias, you know, like. Uh, I went for a long time with big guys. Um, so if you had the number one pick, you tended to, to go more with a big guy. And probably the first time that that, that wound up crushing me was, was Greg Oden versus Kevin Durant as the number one pick. Now, I think if Greg Oden had remained healthy, he would have been a, a truly great player. Uh, but when you see what Kevin Durant can do in the league now, even if Odin had stayed healthy, Durant might've been the, the better pick there. We'll never know, but he might've been the better pick. And we saw it this year with, uh, you know, the decision among, uh, Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball and James Wiseman. 10 years ago, I would have said James Wiseman's the number one pick without, without hesitation. This, this year I had hesitation because of how the game's changed and it's been more perimeter oriented. So that wasn't an emotional thing as much as it was, you know, you're raised in the game a certain way. And sometimes it takes you a little bit longer to wrap your head around the rate of change and how fast things have changed. Um, you know, I, I kind of liken it a little bit to, uh, you know, my kids sometimes they'll look at me when I'm flipping channels uh, late at night, just relaxing. And they'll say, what are you looking for? And I'll say, well, I, I like flipping channels. I mean, it, it, it relaxes me. And they say, whatever you want to watch, you can get on Netflix or Hulu or all these other things. You can get it right away. And I'm going, you don't get it. Like, this is, this is my way of, I like this. And uh, uh, different generations, you know, you're raised a certain way or you come up in the game a certain way. You view it a little bit differently. So you have to, you have to kind of change. And, and change isn't, changing my, your mind isn't as rapid as you'd like it to be. Uh, you're a better man than me. I have an XM serious show on fantasy and I let my emotions, if I pick my chargers to win one more time, it just kills me. I, you're a better man than me. Last question really quick, because I'd be missed not to ask you. Uh, I know not everyone watches this on video, but you have Wilson, the volleyball behind you. <laughs> I got to ask, what's the significance of Wilson, the volleyball behind you? It's actually a basketball. My wife oh. is a professional artist. And so she painted that for me in March. So I'm right now I'm coming to you from my, uh, my home studio. It's a little setup that I have for ESPN. And so I do all my zoom calls and podcasts from here as well. And, uh, and so when the pandemic hit and, you know, the, I came home from the ACC tournament and, and my wife knew I was going to be spending all my time, you know, in this studio uh, she, she painted this Wilson too. She didn't want me to be stranded all by myself. So she, uh, she gave me, she gave me Wilson to hang out with me. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm a castaway in my own closet. So I get the feeling with all the stuff that we're doing as well. Well, I just want to say how much, uh, gratitude I have for you showing up on Christmas Eve, but even more important on your birthday, you're an incredible analyst, an incredible personality. It's been a pleasure to meet you just like all coach K's siblings, you know, just extraordinary men. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer, 
with The Playbook.